0: Welcome to Themis Podcasts. Themis is a risk management firm specialising in financial crime. Our aim of these podcasts is to bring you interesting news, interviews and recordings of our exclusive events from the world of financial crime. Trouble in Paradise? Cracking down on corporate secrecy. Corporate secrecy and financial crime Have long gone hand in hand. Hidden wealth is stashed away in shell companies with obscure owners whose roles and tales of grand-scale corruption go long unexposed. Although recent years have seen a wave of momentum to unveil some of these ultimate beneficial owners, much more still needs to be done to increase corporate transparency and dismantle the system's abuse by organised criminals and corrupt politicians. In March, Henry Williams, Head of Investigations at Themis, sat down with Oliver Bullough, investigative journalist and award-winning author of Moneyland, to hear his thoughts about this dark underside of the global financial system. This podcast is brought to you by Themis, with thanks to our partners Encompass.
1: Thanks very much to Encompass for sponsoring this Themis webinar uh, and giving us the opportunity to talk to Oliver Bullough today. Um, Oliver is a journalist and author of over 20 years' experience, both based in the former Soviet Union and travelling around some of the far-flung jurisdictions, which double as the world's corporate tax havens today. Um, he's documented much of his experience in a number of books, including the bestseller um, *Moneyland: Why Thieves and Crooks Now Rule the World and How to Take It Back*. Um, no less a person than John Le Carre said that every politician and money man on the planet should read it, um, which I think is high praise indeed. Um, I first encountered Oliver a few years ago when he was working with Russian anti-corruption activists, uh, giving guided tours of oligarchs' houses in London on a bus, and while we were stuck in traffic we heard eye-popping stories about how deeply corrupt money was embedded in the UK's economy. Oliver and his colleagues spoke of how the MOD had sold a prime London site to a sanctioned Ukrainian oligarch, or how Russia's Deputy Prime Minister had a flat overlooking the Palace of Westminster. Who needs the KGB and its successors when we are prepared to sell ourselves so cheaply for a temporary passing profit? There's a coda to this story. Shortly after the bus tour, I worked for a reputable professional services firm. Over a coffee on my first day, I found out that one of the people through whose windows we'd been eagerly rubbernecking was in fact an esteemed client of my new employer. This points to a truism for many businesses today. You may not want to find dirty money appearing in your accounts, but dirty money is very keen to find you. Thanks to Magic of Zoom, you can also ask Oliver any burning questions you might have on money laundering and how the global financial system is enabling corruption and organised crime throughout the world. We have a 15 minute Q&A planned at the end of this webinar, so please do send in any questions via the questions tab you can see on your screen. Um, And that leaves it all for me to say, Oliver, it's a real privilege to have you here today and thanks very much for joining us.
2: Well, thanks very much for inviting me. Happy lunchtime, everyone. I'm uh, I'm really excited to be here.
1: Fantastic. Um, so you describe in Moneyland a three-step process um, of money laundering, essentially. Obtaining money, often in illegal ways, hiding this money, and then spending it. Um, today, I wanted to start talking to you mainly about the second step of this process. Um, so maybe a broad question about hiding money. What are the main techniques that criminals use to distance themselves from their dirty money? Um
2: thanks it's a really interesting question i've actually um i'm going to backtrack a little bit uh, chronologically um to look at why i think maybe we've lost track of how interesting it is that criminals are able to hide money so easily these days i've just been reading this book uh, river kings about vikings um and about the way they used to you know raid monasteries and trade in slaves and so on and accumulate vast wealth mainly in silver which they then buried in holes in the ground. Um, if any of you have been to the British Museum, I've not been there, I've not been anywhere recently, but I used to, one of my favorite places in the British Museum was the room upstairs where they have these hordes of um, Viking wealth just laid out for you to look at and you can see where all the coins came from. But what's really interesting is that they went to all the trouble to steal this huge amount of wealth from you know, monasteries and 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 whoever rival rival warlords. And then all they could do with it was stick it in a hole in the ground. And then they went off to battle and never came back. And the money was lost and and only found later by a metal detectorist in a field in Warwickshire or wherever. Um, And so what's really interesting about kleptocracy today, um, organized financial crime, the real top end of financial crime, is how you don't have to hide your wealth in a hole in the ground anymore. Um, Somehow, at some point, a process emerged that meant that you could steal as much as you wanted and still enjoy the use of the money that you stole. Um, And I I think it was that revelation. I mean, mean, it seems like a very banal revelation, but it felt very important to me when I I had it because I hadn't really thought about this before. Um, That that revelation that really sowed the seeds for why I decided to start writing about corruption. How did it become so easy for criminals and kleptocrats to steal vast fortunes um, and continue to enjoy the use of them? Uh, in a way that didn't used to be the case for criminals when money was held in the form of bullion, whether that's gold or silver or jewels or whatever. And so that's where my trail began. Um, and that was in, um, primarily in Ukraine in uh, sort of 2013, 2014, around the time there was the revolution there. You know, I'd lived in the former Soviet Union for many years and been sort of, a, you know, I'd come across corruption on a personal basis in that people would try to extort money from me or from my friends, you know, regularly, because that's how things are. But I hadn't ever thought about it as a system and how you transfer, you know, a thousand rubles here, two thousand, five thousand rubles extorted from people on the street into, uh, you know, a yacht in Holland or a, a mansion in London. How, You know, what is the process whereby all of these small street level bribes become vast Wealth held legitimately in the international financial system, and so that's uh, the 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 interesting story that I think Moneyland tells. And in a way, the story is sort of my personal attempt to understand how you know organized crime became so potent. And um, I mean, I'm not going to tell the story here, but but it goes back to um, the 1950s and particularly the 1960s in London when. Uh, London the city of London in, a, in post-imperial city of London is looking for a new business model and and found this essentially a, a a profitable niche in selling um scrutiny avoidance to wealthy citizens and wealthy companies of the world particularly initially particularly people who put their money in Swiss banks you know and in a way putting your money in a Swiss bank was no more um sophisticated than what the Vikings used to do. You just took it to a Swiss bank and they put it in a hole in the ground. You know, you didn't have to dig the hole yourself with a spade. It was dug for you by a Swiss bank. But essentially, you were just putting your money in a hole in the ground. You didn't really get to enjoy it. Um, in, in You know, it, it was stuck in the hole. And, and, and the magic that was created by London bankers in, in particularly the early 1960s was to create financial instruments, bearer financial instruments, euro bonds, they were called, um, the Eurobonds today are rather different, but in those days, Eurobonds were bearer, anonymous, tax-free financial instruments that allowed um, the holders of wealth in a hole in the ground to invest that wealth in such a way that suddenly the wealth broke free. It could be used anywhere, enjoyed anywhere, completely anonymously, um, carried anywhere in a briefcase. Um, and this was a, a magical invention, and it had two effects. One was people who had stolen large amounts of money already, the sort of Vikings of the day, whether those were, you know, deposed presidents of South American states or Nazi war criminals or, or just Commonwealth Guard and European tax dodgers, what bankers used to call Belgian dentists, um, In slightly ironically, I think. They, um, they they were able to make use of the money that they had already stolen or already avoided, had slipped past the tax authorities. But it also made it far more um, profitable and far more attractive to steal in the future because you know what if you stole money you didn't just get to enjoy the knowledge of the fact you owned it you also got to enjoy the fact that you owned it so if you look at the um you know the 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 birth of really large-scale corruption as it affected particularly sub-saharan africa um the uh, southeast asia uh, southern asia um you know you have this wave throughout the mid to late 1960s and into the 1970s when you know governments like the governments of the Philippines, like the governments of Nigeria, um, corruption becomes a huge problem. Almost it feels almost out of nowhere. There was a um, Polish academic called Stanislaw Andreski, who was based at the University of Reading, who who created or sort of recoined an old word kleptocracy to describe this sudden phenomenon of, of massive state-scale corruption, grand theft nation, it was being been called by an American academic. Um, and really it was this combination of political power and the ability to, to hide and then use money. And so that's the moment when, you know, kleptocrats, so so corrupt officials stopped just being Vikings, stealing and hiding in a hole in the ground and became kleptocrats who could steal and continue to enjoy anonymously the use of, of their stolen money. That's the key moment, and that's when Moneyland was born. And so it's the sort of subsequent um, development of of corruption in, in the, the way that offshore sort of spread and, and infiltrated into so many areas of the world is, is kind of the story of the book. And I think it's it's one of the most important stories of our time, the way that, um, you know, responsibility-free wealth has allowed people to buy property, um, you know, buy political power, you know, buy all sorts of things, um, buy an- anonymity, um, without any kind of um, backlash against them, because the vast majority of people don't even realise it's
1: happening. Thanks Oliver, I mean I I think that's so fascinating and um, we're talking about people buying but obviously there's a lot of people selling as well and so that's you can see the sort of corrupting influence coming from you know from this initial theft and then working its way into the financial system of the west Um, and I think you put it very well that you know a lot of these things were designed for tax avoidance and then the sort of naughty money starts mixing with the very truly dodgy money Um, I think that's really interesting about the sort of what and what's happening, but I'd be very curious about the how, how does this happen in modern day? And um, what I sort of, what I understand is, you know, the ultimate beneficial owner of a company is key to understanding who is actually controlling these business transactions. But what we have in the world today is that we have a lot of jurisdictions where you can hide the beneficial owner of a company. Um, so maybe just sort of talking a bit more about your experience, I know you've been to some quite far-flung places where this goes on, but why is it so difficult to identify ultimate beneficial owners, and how does this present a challenge to people who are trying to pinpoint where corrupt theft's been taken to?
2: Well, I mean, I think the the first thing to remember, and I almost had this sort of stuck on a piece of paper on my wall when I'm, I mean, I still do almost, is that all crime is committed by people, right? Um, The idea that it's committed by a company is... Is absurd. A company is is a legal construct. You could you know you could no more commit a, a company could no more commit a crime than a marriage could commit a crime. It's it's not a it's not a thing. It's a legal construct between the regulate affairs between people. So all crime is committed by people. Um, what a company does, or you know a, an anonymous company or other structure, whether it's a partnership or a foundation or whatever, is it allows the people committing a crime to pretend that they're not doing it. Or allows people who possess stolen wealth to pretend that it's not them who own it, but is instead some other structure. Um, And I came across this um, for the first time in again in Ukraine, where which was a sort of real road to Damascus place for me Um, in 2014 when I was visiting um, one of the uh, exile the fled president's many luxurious residences. He'd, He'd fled in a hurry taken a lot of stuff on the helicopter with him obviously a lot of banknotes, a lot of you know works of art and various but he had to leave you know his houses behind obviously he couldn't fit them in the helicopter um and one of them was this rather lovely uh hunting lodge in a forest about 40 or 50 kilometers outside kiev and um i visited it in the company of a revolutionary who had slightly improbably on the day after the revolution turned up at the gate told the policeman guarding it that he was the revolution and he wanted the key um, and he was so sort of confident that the policeman had just given him the key, and he'd ended up kind of as the custodian of this property on on behalf of the nation. Um, we went in there and poked around, and it, you know, unlike a lot of sort of kleptocrats' residences which I've seen, it was actually rather nice. It was quite tasteful and and had all sorts of you know like a nice barbecue area. I'd, I'd quite happily would have lived there, to be honest. Um, but the um, I suppose the moment came for me when I I said to him, I said to Anton, um, you know, because this wasn't the first kleptocrat residents would have been and seen it was clear that this was just one of very many places that had been built with money stolen from the nation in a very short period of time and i said you know how could you let the president get away with this how did you not know what was happening um and and he was obviously a little bit annoyed because the revolution had literally just overthrown the president so it did possibly this was a slightly um unnecessary diss on the ukrainian nation's virility but um he he sort of slightly snapped to me and said, we, "We didn't know what was happening. We couldn't have known because, you know, listen, th- this place where we're standing, the ground we're standing on. he said this isn't even in Ukraine. This is in England. Um, look it up." And um, and I did look it up. I was interested to look into the property ownership, but and he was right. The I mean, obviously, it technically, wasn't in England, but it was owned by a British company, um, and uh, that British company uh, was owned by another British company, which in turn was owned by a foundation registered in Liechtenstein, and. And because of this, um, there was two things. Partly, it looked like the ownership owner of this land was just a legitimate foreign investor who had come and invested money in the Ukrainian tourism sector, you know, a British business. And the other thing was, because of the Lichtenstein Foundation, it was completely impossible to figure out who was really behind it. You know, who was who was standing behind this investment. Um, all you found was a shell company at twenty nine Harley Street in in West London, and that was it. Um, and I suppose it, I had this this realization that. Um at that point that corruption is not just a Ukrainian problem or Ukrainian corruption isn't just a Ukrainian problem, but it is enabled by the West. You have, you know, as it were, to demand for corruption services from Ukrainian kleptocrats and supply of corruption services by British lawyers, British um companies, trust service providers, you know British banks and so on. This isn't um you know something that is that is re- stuck within one country. it is something that is inherently transnational. And once it becomes transnational, it becomes very hard for anyone, whether that's a revolutionary like Anton or a police officer, to figure out what's going on. Because you you can't, you know, you can't knock down a door in another country if you're a police officer. It's very hard to obtain evidence from another country. Um, and partly this is one of the places why, why I think journalists are, are important. I mean, I would say this, I'm a journalist, but, but, um, but the fact that we can go wherever we like, ask questions of wherever we like, means that in a way we can cut through you know, the 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 barriers put in the place of of investigating offshore wealth in a way that that very few um you know officials can. Um, so I was able to to follow the 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 um sort of traces of stolen Ukrainian money all over the place. I went looking in Cyprus and I ended up, as you say, I, I ended up on the island of Nevis in the Caribbean. Which is a very lovely place indeed. It's like a little, very little island in the in half of the Federation of St. Kitts and Nevis, the smaller half and the dodgier half, which is going some because St. Kitts is pretty dodgy as well. Um, But it has a um, it has an incredibly opaque company registry, and I had this extraordinary conversation with the registrar who I who I interviewed, and she was um, she was just highly amused by the suggestion that that there was any corruption involved in what they were doing at all. She just couldn't see why. The fact they were selling totally anonymous companies to ukrainian officials was in any way troubling um she actually laughed in my face when i suggested that they were somehow complicit in the corruption involved and i think that that's essentially the problem because from the position from the perspective of a Novisian lawyer or registrar all they're doing is selling legal instruments they're not you know it's it's five hundred dollars and there you are here's your nevisian shell company the idea that that is a crucial tool for stealing wealth from the Ukrainian nation seems incredibly distant if you're sitting in the Caribbean. And that's the problem. You know, money flows seamlessly between countries and suddenly it's half a world away from where it began and all the people moving it have got no idea where it comes from or or, or no interest where it comes from. Um, And so that's what, you know, I try and do in the book is to try and piece together this, this, you know, connections between all these places to show that what you have is a a seamless link um, of corrupt movements of, of money which are obscured by, you know, Cypriot companies, Novician companies, British companies. Um, and to try and cut through all of that nonsense, all of this sort of plumbing in corruption, and just say, where does the money come from? Who was it stolen from? And where did it end up? What's it spent on? And invariably the people it's stolen from are, you know, already very vulnerable people, you know, people who've already got very little, who are, whose lives are being made a misery by corrupt officials. Um. and and ending up in the pockets of very wealthy people in major world cities, and particularly London. And this is what we tried to do with the kleptocracy tour that you mentioned at the beginning, was to show um, that all these beautiful houses, not all of them, but a lot of these beautiful houses you drive around, you know, Eaton Square or down Brompton Road, you know, these gorgeous West London thoroughfares. And you can point out house after house after house, which is, you know, has been bought with questionable money and obscured behind a shell company whether that's in in panama or st Kitts and nevis or the british virgin islands or liberia or, or luxembourg or wherever um and and so it's very difficult to figure out what's going on without you know good luck or, or a huge investment of time and resources which is something where if you are the victim of corruption you don't have
1: amazing um and i think your your story about the president's palace i mean gives us a sort of real 21st century slant to um, this corner of a foreign field will f- remain forever England, doesn't it? Um, well, I
2: mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a sort of it's a particularly grim example of it actually about yeah. the way that yeah, I mean, almost exactly hundred years after the First World War, how yeah, how Britain has changed, you know, into this sort of vendor of corruption services to pretty much anyone that requires them, and it's and it's an issue which you know we we had the um the the review of of British foreign policy published what was it last week or the week before, um, which is really interesting because it talks about you know, organized crime. And it does talk a little bit about corruption, but it talks to them as, as external threats to the UK. Um, it doesn't talk about the fact that Britain is probably the single leading vendor of, you know, corruption solutions, that we are the big centre of the enabling industry.
1: I would la- I'd like to jump in here, actually, because I mean, you know, you've, you've written extensively about, you know, the failures of UK companies house, for instance. Um, and, you know, certainly UK government has got its national economic crime plan. It's, there does seem to be a level in the UK government which understands that there, there are a number of issues here. Um, but do you think it's just a case of not enough resources, not being awake to the problem? Was well, there too many vested interests, which is causing the UK to be, you know, central cog in this, in this horrific bureaucracy?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, obviously there is an aspect of there not being enough resources. Um, but I think in a way that's just a way of, you know, that's, that, that's not an explanation because that just is another way of saying that there isn't the political will um, to do something about this. You know, I think that the, for a long time there wasn't an understanding of what was really happening. I think you know, us journalists are to blame for that. We hadn't really managed to get the point across of what's really happening. But I mean, I've for this for the book I've been working on recently, which I sent the manuscript off a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I'm in the lucky position not yet having heard back from my editor, so I can pretend all is well. Um, or
1: Roman Abramovich.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, let's hit let's hope that doesn't happen. I um, I but I did look into the interesting story of the Scottish Limited Partnership. Um, Scottish Limited Partnerships, are, you know, Britain has many weird loopholes and cul-de-sacs in its legislation. Scottish Limited Partnership is a particularly weird one um, in that they were, you know, essentially only really used for agricultural tenancies um, for decades. And then suddenly, you know, there's this explosion of their use in the early years of this century. Um, and you ended up with more being created every year than had been created over the previous century. Um, and you know, there's a lot of um media coverage, a couple of very good, gifted journalists in Scotland who who wrote in, writing for the for the Herald and the Herald on Sunday about the misuse of SLPs, and, and a couple of, of politicians in Scotland who picked up on this and really tried hard to campaign for them to be reformed. Um and, and they were being used by criminals, you know, Eastern European criminals, if you look at the Danske Bank money laundering scandal, or or any well any of the big Baltic money laundering scandals that the assets were being held and hidden in Scottish limited partnerships overwhelmingly, um, and it should have been an easy thing to solve. But if you look at the submissions to government when government looked into solving this problem, there are multiple law firms writing in and saying that these structures are actually used mainly by the fund management industry, and if greater. Um, Uh, red tape, in inverted commas, is imposed on them, then the fund management industry will leave and go to Luxembourg. Um, And so, interestingly, what happened was, and this is a story that I don't think has been told before, and I'm quite looking forward to it coming out in my book, the scoop here for you today, is that actually, and and this has really escaped scrutiny altogether, during the process of um, looking into reforming Scottish Limited Partnerships to deregulate, to to re-regulate them, to up-regulate them, the government actually created a whole new form of limited partnership which was even less regulated um you know so while you had one the sort of the home office was was fighting quite hard to to increase the regulations in order to make it harder for money launderers um the treasury produced a, a private fund limited partnership uh, to which there is also a scottish private fund limited partnership which is even less regulated um to make it easier for the fund management industry um so there is this constant push and pull between you know, what I call in Moneyland, which you mentioned earlier, between the naughty money um, and the evil money, that, you know, the, the the naughty money quite likes these instruments as well. Um, and the evil money gets to slipstream in behind. So essentially, despite the fact that, you know, Scottish Limited Partnerships were, you know, to, almost entirely responsible for the looting of Moldova, you know, to a tune of an eighth of its GDP, which is an incredible amount of money in a single year, um, nothing has happened really nothing substantive has happened to to prevent them being used in that way again you know uh, Danske Bank the biggest money laundering scandal in history um largely or primarily using Scottish limited partnerships and limited liability partnerships and various other British structures again nothing has happened no response to that at all um and I think that shows the extent to which the um legislative process, the regulatory process is being dominated by um, the interests of the private fund industry to the detriment of the interests of the citizens of Eastern Europe or other countries where money launderers are, you know, preying on ordinary people.
1: I think, um, you know, I think that's often something which gets quite lost in industry, as you say, almost a bit like the companies and the fact there's always a person really, it's not a company, it's just a, a vehicle. Um, I think when we're talking about money laundering, sometimes the sums are so vast. You know, you talked about of Moldova's GDP. Um, I mean, could you give any sort of real life personal examples of, you know, the damage this corruption causes? And, you know, the way you have funds being taken out of Ukraine, for instance. What's what's the physical effect of this corruption on actually the people who are most affected by it?
2: Well, I um, I work with a, an anti-corruption group in Ukraine called the Anti-Corruption Action Centre, um, which is set up by two insanely brave Ukrainians called Dario Kaminyuk and Vitali Shabunin, who who are lawyers and who wanted to use their legal skills to try and fight corruption in the pre-revolutionary years and to continue to do so now. And one of the first reports they did, which was in 2013, when it was, you know, it was very dangerous. In fact, Dario had to leave the country for a bit because it was so dangerous, was they looked into HIV, AIDS, drugs, and tuberculosis drug prices, um, uh, just just looking at the numbers, just saying, we, we, we don't know, we can't tell because of the shell companies, we can't tell who's dominating the market, but just looking at the numbers, how much is the Ukrainian government spending on HIV, AIDS drugs and TB drugs compared to what these drugs are available for in other countries? Um, and on average, um, they were being overcharged uh, between 150 and 300% um, for these drugs. Now, at the time... Um, Ukraine had the, the world's fastest growing HIV epidemic. Um, tuberculosis was, was you know, widespread in the country's prisons and, and in particularly in the east of the country. Um, you know, it was, these were huge public health emergencies. In fact, in certain bits of the country, tuberculosis and, and HIV had melded into a single epidemic that people with HIV were catching TB because of their weakened immune systems. And this is, you know, it was a desperate situation. And yet at the same time, There were officials in the Ministry of Health who were colluding with corrupt um, insiders uh, in in pharmaceutical companies to move the shipments essentially via ownership of Cypriot shell companies, which were then tripling the prices in order to take the money. So there just wasn't enough money in the system um, to to buy the drugs the country needed. Um, And no, I mean, this first report by Dario and Vitali was just into HIV, AIDS and, and TB drugs um later i looked into this in terms of other drugs um and a particularly striking terrible story to be honest was about um the clotting factor which is used by haemophiliacs you know haemophilia though it used to be a a death sentence 100 years ago it's very easily treatable now with regular injections of clotting factor and it means the drug that blood clots entirely normally but if you lack clotting factor a bruise or a cut can can be life-threatening it can be the end of your life and I became quite friendly with a, with a family in Kiev. Um, Nina was the mother and her daughter was called Nonna, and Nonna was seven when I first met them. And she, fantastic, lively, bouncy seven-year-old, you know, just the most funny, glorious young girl. Um, and her mum was amazing because essentially when uh, Nonna was one, she was diagnosed as having haemophilia um, and she couldn't get clotting factor. Even though there is a Ukrainian constitutional provision that all Ukrainians have the right to the healthcare they need, this clotting factor just didn't exist because the money was being stolen by insiders in the Ministry of Health. So essentially her daughter's haemophilia had taken over Nina's life altogether. Um, She she could never drink because she never knew when she was going to have to drive her daughter to hospital. Um, She used to sleep next to her daughter and trained herself to recognise the smell of blood. So if her daughter had a bleed when she was asleep, she would know that she could rely on the fact that she would wake up um, and would be able to wake up. Can you imagine that? Jumping out of sleep in the middle of the night, putting your daughter in the car, driving her to the hospital and hoping that someone has got some of this medicine. And that, I don't know, I found that just, just absolutely spellbinding. The thought that that, I mean, I have a seven-year-old myself and the thought that that would be your experience of of growing up with a seven-year-old would be just desperation. They couldn't go outside to play because you never know if they'd cut themselves. And that's this of the human cost of corruption. You know, and meanwhile, we have Ukrainian uh, government officials buying 10 20 30 million pound houses in west london with that money with the same money you know and um and i suppose it, it it's quite entertaining when when you know british government ministers talk about fighting corruption you know the response of everyone i know in ukraine is just a laugh you know the it's like you know it's just it's just words you know they're not actually doing anything and and it is you know and it does i, I think it really it really clashes with the self-image that many British people have of our country. You know, we think of ourselves as a sort of rule of law jurisdiction and as a sort of, you know, we're kind of one of the good guys, you know, we're very generous with foreign aid or traditionally not so much this year. Um, And yet actually um, the reality of it is, is that, is that, you know, our position in the world from the perspective of most residents of places like Ukraine or Nigeria or Angola is, is, is the, you know, is the, the place that, that sells their rulers, the wealth management, tools that they need to to manage the wealth that they've stolen. And that's not great, really. Not well, great.
1: I think that's, that's what that's why I wanted to talk to you about. I mean, you know, I think some particularly horrific examples you've given there. Um, and, you know, I think this brings us to another word. You've talked about kleptocracy, but one of the other words that seems to go hand in hand with that is um, enablers and professional enablers. Uh, and when we're talking about that, you know, we're talking about lawyers, accountants, trust providers and lobbyists. Many of these are based in London and in the UK. Um, And what can be done in terms of being able to crack down on this? And is it a case of educating people not to take this money? I mean, the amount of people I've spoken to who laugh about having a Ukrainian oligarch on their books. um, And then, you know, and actually the reality is this is where the money comes from. Um, What what can we what can we do about this?
2: Yeah, I I mean, it's really interesting. Um, There was a case exposed in the Panama Papers. Of a, of a lawyer um, in, in London who had created a, a couple of companies for the daughters of the president of Azerbaijan. Um, and he, he, as a result of the, the the leak, the Panama Papers leak and the media reporting around it, he was he, he ended up in front of the solicitor's um, tribunal, the, the solicitor's, the SRA's disciplinary tribunal, and was fined a, you know, quite a substantial chunk of money, though I suppose he probably did quite well for himself, so maybe it didn't mean much to him. Would have been a lot for me. Um, and what I found interesting was his defense, um, was he, he said he'd never, he didn't even Google these two women to see who they were, um, but there was nothing about them to suggest that they had any, you know, political connections. That was his, in his defense, you know, they shared a surname with the president of Azerbaijan, right? Now, okay, Aliyev is a relatively common surname in the former Soviet Union, but still, um, you know, if, if anything is to give someone away as a politically exposed person, the fact that they have a surname which is the same as the president of an of an oil rich, you know, authoritarian ex Soviet republic, you'd think that that would be a you know a, a bit of a red flag. And I think it just goes to show how normalised it's become for lawyers and and others to work with people like this in in London and not just London. I mean, the, the you know lots of places in the United States and elsewhere in Europe are as bad, um, if not quite as successful at it as we are. Um, then you know, I think it 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 it's just become normal. You don't like you say people boast about it. It's it's you know there's a lot of money involved. I tell the story in Moneyland of this astonishing episode of um, the reality TV show Say Yes to the Dress, in which you know a bridal a wedding dress boutique in New York um, basically shuts for the day to allow an Angolan government minister's daughter to go and spend six figure sum on a wedding dress. Um, and you know, and it's it's great telly. It's very entertaining um yeah they're talking about how she's basically a princess in her own country and they need to treat her you know with with you know all respect and everything and no one at all stops to think angola is a country with you know 55 you know child poverty level i mean appallingly you know deprived population and how on earth has this woman got enough money to drop a six-figure sum on a wedding dress you know considering her dad isn't is a member of the politburo you know it's i mean not i'm not accusing the guy of corruption maybe he has a successful business empire on the side who knows but but um it's still it's just that you know the, the lack of curiosity about the origin of people's wealth um you know i think my i i think that what we need is people to go to jail um you know i think if one or two lawyers went to jail and got treated in the way that benefit fraudsters get treated um then it would focus people's minds quite significantly. At the moment, there's very few downsides really to moving criminal money around in in, in this country. I mean, we see in the states people get treated, you know, quite quite roughly. Um, financial institutions end up with these huge fines, but in Britain, it you know it's it's a slap on the wrist if that most of the time. And so yeah, I mean, I you know I I think we have pretty good laws in Britain. I just don't think we enforce them, um, and and that's a. You know is is a chronic problem which has been going on for a long time and 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 that again comes back to the question of political will you know the under-resourcing of the national crime agency the city of london police the met and serious fraud office is, is chronic and has been going on for for, for decades um you know the, the the predecessors of those agencies
1: okay um just um just a word now for our audience um so all of us can be taking questions from the audience now in five minutes Um, so please do we've got a couple coming in but please please do keep on sending them in and we'll 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 try and get through as many of them as possible in the last 20 minutes of this webinar Um, I think probably just to sort of finish off on this section or the like you're talking um, you know about investigating some pretty nasty people um, and traveling some quite interesting destinations I mean were you were you ever in danger doing your research and have you got some pretty fruity stories about going around doing this no i mean not
2: really i used to be before i did this I, I mean i was before i was a journalist i was a journalist but i um i used to report on uh, chechnya um in the early 2000s when there was war in chechnya and and an awful lot of hostage taking and suicide bombing and stuff that was my job so um to be honest it it seems like a um it's like a re- retirement job in that regard um you know the, the that was pretty horrible a lot of the time and Going to the Caribbean and, and failing to get answers from an official in the Caribbean is you know I mean it hardly hardly feels like working most of the time you know oh look here I am on a on a ferry from Saint Kitts to Nevis where I'm going to fail to get any information at all while going in the evening to write up my notes in a beach bar you know it's it there are there are worse ways to earn a living um you know I have had you know I do get occasional sort of slightly mean communications and and I do get hacked every now and then and so on but but really um you know i think the difficulties i face compared to the difficulties faced by investigative journalists in places like russia or um or ukraine or or angola is nothing really um you know the real um the real people who suffer the brunt of these of the kleptocrats are colleagues in in azerbaijan um yeah russia afghanistan yeah that's where the danger is um so far on my hillside outside hayon why where i live you know i feel okay i mean touch wood no one's come for me here yet, and I, to be honest, I'd be surprised if they did. I think, by the standards of of the people they really care about, I'm a bit of an irritation rather than an existential threat.
1: Fantastic. Well, I think I think that's 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 a pretty pretty good note to finish on there. Um, and um, yeah, just to say, you know, some of the um, articles which um, I've I've certainly come across, such as your report on the two thousand different companies at twenty nine Harley Street, <sighs> 20,
2: um, 29 Harley Street. Interestingly, twenty nine <laughs> Harley Street. Um, there was a, that, their, their email server. So 29 Harley Street was the, it's the house in West London where Yanukovych had his companies. And, and I thought it was funny that it was Harley Street. This was when I was very green and looking into all this. Stuff. Oh, Harley Street, that's funny. And then I looked into Harley Street and realised that for, for decades, there'd just been fraud after fraud after fraud linked back to this one building. Um, And, and then there, so I've, I reported this article and nothing changed because nothing ever does. But then um. A couple of years later, their email server got leaked. Um, So I could look at their email server. um, And a journalist let me have a look at it. And I could see what they've been saying about me (laughs) afterwards. And, um, you know, and they genuinely couldn't understand what I was talking about. You know, I'd written, I'd put together, you know, I I had a, a huge list of potential frauds I could have chosen to write about. But I just picked the kind of five or six most extraordinary ones, which were extraordinary. I mean, like 100 million euros, you know, from a, a Dutch shipping company, you know, h- h- tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars from American investors, you know, obviously the Ukrainian president. I mean, like a lot of big frauds of all kinds and all shapes and sizes. And they just were furious with me. They couldn't understand why I was writing about them. You know, this guy's, you know, he's got the wrong end of the stick. He's like, we've not done anything wrong. You know, and I think it was that, that just the, the their failure to understand that they were part of a, of a of a system that was you know perpetuating financial crime to a huge extent, you know, and it and 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 yeah, I mean I think it was I mean, you know, they had they were selling companies with with a director who was dead. Um you know, she was still signing off the accounts despite the fact she was dead. And and yet they were like, oh well it could happen to anyone. <laughs> well, no, it couldn't. How could you not realize the director of your company is dead? Um it's extraordinary. You know she's not available to sign the accounts anymore and yet mysteriously there she is so it was a lot of that kind of thing and and it's that i think people just get on with their jobs and don't realize the effect of their the effects of of, of what they're doing Um, I mean, people just don't think you
1: know that sounds a bit like a board meeting of jeremy bentham would be quite 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 entertaining um thanks very much oliver um i think we, we're getting some really great questions coming in i think you know, this one. This one's um um. Sorry, you haven't put your name, but um, you talk about how criminals have taken up the uses of Scottish limited partnerships as a tool to hide their wealth. What are some of the next criminal techniques or threats that you think will emerge in the coming months or years? Um, you know, certainly, I think from my side, I think about crypto, and you know, how you could just take something on a USB. But I don't want to direct your answers to that. So feel free to go for it.
2: Yeah, I, this is a really interesting question. There is a, a sort of movement. Very gradual in the great arm wrestle towards transparency. We've seen, you know, the the new legislation in the United States, which has been the real outlier on transparency for a long time, you know, inching forward in in the EU. Suggestions that the UK could improve its company registry so it verifies information. You know, obviously the UK forcing its tax havens to publish, you know, their company registry So there is a suggestion that we're moving forward on transparency, and and you know, and this could. I mean, could is doing a lot of work, but it could create a kind of new paradigm whereby, you know, it is now normal to to publish beneficial ownership. And and if you don't, then you're inherently dodgy. Um, So then what happens? I mean, essentially a a really interesting question, um, because it, it raises the question that it could separate out the naughty money from the evil money. You know, the naughty money could just say, well, you know, it's not that big a deal if we publish beneficial ownership. Whereas for the evil money, it is a big deal. So it could be a game changer. you know. However, as you say, there are lots of potential techniques to be used to allow people to hide money. Um, one of the really interesting things that I'm looking at at the moment, and I don't really know how I'm going to write about this, but I want to write about this, is the phenomenon of cash, right? Now, I know cash is like a bit of an old school way of, of laundering money, but it's really amazing how in the last sort of 10 15 years, the volume of cash transactions has dropped by about 80%, right? People just use cards now. And particularly this last year of the pandemic, it's really quite unusual now for people to use cash. Yet the volume of cash in circulation in all major um, economies, so whether that's the Eurozone, the UK, the the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, the volume of cash in circulation has tripled. Um, So while there has been this increasing, you know, crackdown on the movement of electronic money. Um, and much more due diligence in the movement of electronic money. At the same time, governments are issuing ever larger volumes of cash to allow criminals to circumvent um, those controls. And I find that very interesting. Um, you know, there is a very a distinct lack of joined up thinking in, you know, that the, you know, the government is taking away with one hand while handing out with the other. So I think that the criminals are not yet um, at the stage that they're going to have to rely, or kleptocrats are not yet at the stage that they're going to have to rely wholly on uh, crypto assets i would say cryptocurrencies are currently way too volatile to be of much use to anyone with a lot of money involved i mean i think they're use very useful for sort of the drug dealers on the sort of retail level but yeah you know, when you're talking about billions i think it'd be a fool who put a billion billion or two into that kind of asset personally um but you know i find the use of fine art in being held in free ports and then as a, as a collateral for raising loans or 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 you know yachts big you know i mean i, I was talking to someone the other day who said he, he, he had a client who, who didn't bother with cash anymore he just worked, has fifty dollars watches, turns up in a new city, sells his watch, and there he goes, he's he's fine. Um, you know, so there are many, still many ways of circumventing controls, you know, before we have to worry about, you know, crypto. You know, crypto is a concern, but I think there are there are lots of of other techniques that are of more significance at the moment. It might just be because I'm a Luddite, I don't know.
1: Um, well, I think maybe this might bring us on to then back to the sort of the companies area. So obviously a lot of these places like we talked about. Um, I'm not sure if Nevis is, actually, but um, a lot of these places are UK overseas territories.
2: Yeah, yeah, Nevis is Commonwealth, but not... Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, But I guess places like the BVI and the Caymans. And um, So do you think the UK has to make a stand against these finance... I'm sorry, this is a question from Viri Chauhan, who's from Themis. Do you think the UK has to make a stand against financial secrecy and illicit financial flows? Um, Because surely we're complicit. No, and
2: we are. We are the the big problem, um, is the the UK... Absolutely, the UK should do more i mean there used to be when david cameron was prime minister whatever that was 1912 or whenever that was um that felt um he he seemed to find this issue something he was interested in and he used and there were a number of initiatives which came out of the cameron government which were quite valuable like having you know a a register of offshore ownership of uk property and and trying to encourage more transparency in the overseas territories and so on but I don't think Boris Johnson cares, um, to put it mildly. I don't think he's interested in this as an issue. Um Theresa May, I don't think she was that bothered by it either. Um, so I think a lot depends from the tone at the top. And at the moment, I don't think there's much emphasis uh on this. I certainly in the in the in the sort of the foreign policy review, the integrated review, I didn't see any real sign of of a of a joined up UK response to the problem of illicit financial flows. Um I'm a little bit more heartened by the Labour side. Annalise Dodds, the Shadow Chancellor, is very good on this. So maybe if we get a change of government one day, then she'd be a bit better if she's still in that job. Um, but I think in general there is a failure in in London to recognise the damage that that, that the UK does, and we need a, you know, it, it, we, if I we mean a global Britain, it'd be great if global Britain could mean, you know, not Singapore on Thames, but a new paradigm with gold plating all our regulations and so on. But but we have. You know, I mean, it's another thing I write about in this new book I've been working on. Um, the extent to which our law enforcement agencies are underfunded, I think, is very poorly recognized. You know, the you know, the the, the latest the unexplained wealth order failure against Deregan Azabayeva, the daughter of the president of Kazakhstan, former president of Kazakhstan, um, last summer, that failure will probably have cost the National Crime Agency its entire budget for unexplained wealth orders for a decade. Um, wow. you know, and so that's, you know, that's that's a major failure. That's not, you know, that's this tool which was talked up by government ministers as the silver bullet to, to really cut through the kleptocracy links to the UK. You know, that, that tool is now, you know, gone really. Um, and that's pretty dispiriting, really. And, uh, and I think if we're going to run a major international financial centre, we need to um, resource it appropriately and not just resource it as if we were an ordinary European country.
1: Um, well I guess maybe then on a sort of slightly more sort of positive note I mean certainly working in the sort of financial service industry you know the requirements now to do KYC know your client and anti money laundering checks you know they they are they're not onerous but they they're, they are part of what everyone has to do and you know that's mandated by the FATF and it recently did its evaluation of the UK um so have all the KYC and AML sorry this question's from Roger Johnston have all the KYC and AML requirements of recent years not made any difference
2: I, it's really interesting I, you're absolutely right. I was talking to um the head of one of these new AI um enabled kyc tech companies that really tries to crawl through um customer you know accounts and so on uh, yesterday about you know the new tools that are available to really help to try and get a step ahead of the money launderers. and it's amazing what the sort of new reg tech companies are coming up with to help the the compliance departments of of, of banks and and you know other money moving organizations. it's extraordinary. Um, what is now available. And it's fantastic. And obviously they are producing reports and large numbers of reports, which which are going to help law enforcement agencies, um, Accept that while they've got this amazing 21st century tech combing through their customer records, when those reports end up in the National Crime Agency, you know, they end up in a a database that was designed in the early 2000s for 30,000 reports a year and is now getting half a million reports a year. So you know, there's been this requirement for the private sector to spend, you know, huge amounts of money on compliance every year, um, while um, the government has not given anything like those kind of resources to the law enforcement agencies that are supposed to do something with the information being created. You know, you're, you can't expect a bank to prosecute people. I mean, what, are they going to start a private prosecution against one of their clients? I mean, it's obviously not going to happen. You know, they create the evidence which they give to the National Crime Agency or the Met or the City Police or whatever. And, and they're supposed to do something with the information, but, but they are, you know, they are being inundated with this stream of reports and don't have the resources to do anything about them. So, no, I, I think, sadly, you know, the KYC and AML requirements um, uh, have made it more difficult for criminals to, you know, say, on board, on board, on um, board. Uh, but once you've onboarded they don't seem to stop the volume of money being moved around um i haven't seen any any suggestion that the amount of money being laundered around the world or you know the volume of illicit financial flows is, is in any way contracted um so it, it's you know they, they will have made a difference um, i i hope they've they've maybe managed to limit the increase in 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 illicit financial flows but but in terms of reducing it no i, I don't think so um i had a i was talking to a professor of uh, an expert in criminology the other day was saying, you know, if you want to look at what happens when a government wants to do to, to change something, just look at what happened with road traffic deaths from the 1980s when they made um seatbelt wearing compulsory. You know, the amount of deaths on the roads collapsed. I mean, this, they're essentially statistically insignificant now. There were very loads of them in the early 80s. You know, it was around the same time that government started supposedly taking money laundering seriously, and yet the volume of money being laundered since the 1980s has yeah, I mean, how many times higher is it? Triple, quadrupled? Who knows? I mean, it certainly hasn't in any way gone down, you know. And I think that just shows that the government doesn't really take this. Or governments don't really take this seriously. I think, and I think FATF is is part of that problem. They're very good at looking at, you know, um, out, you know, the throughput of information. Very bad at looking, bad at looking at outcomes. You know, we don't, we don't stop money. We don't confiscate money. We don't prosecute people. We're just very good at filing SARs, and that's not the same thing.
1: Well, I think, actually, again, then this is um, this question from Tom Stanley, who, um, you know, clearly works doing these kind of checks. Um, Hi, that was fascinating. Thank you. Looking on UK's company's house the other day, I found a couple of companies that had no appropriate person. This is the shareholder PSC. Do you think the introduction of a person of significant control on UK Companies house has done more harm than good? And can you think um, of a workable solution if it not?
2: I think that the, the, the PSC regime, like like all the controls on company's house, has imposed extra costs on people who are already obeying the rules, while um, making zero difference to the difference to people who weren't. Um, you know, these. I mean, it's all voluntary, right? All this disclosure on company's house—you can just make something up, or, or like you say, no appropriate person, or, or you know, we could not find, unable to find the person significant control, which is my particular favourite. The fact that a company is unable to know who owns it is is particularly charming. Um, so you know the. I mean, I quite like looking at Companies House and just typing in random letters and seeing how many names come up. You know, if you type in triple X on Company's House, you come up with a surprising number of people whose first name or second name, or indeed both, is Triple X. Um, you can do it with triple Y, Triple Z. There are just all these people with crazy names um, who, who just don't obviously exist. There's a I think there's an XXX Stalin who's my favorite. Um and, you know, this is a an issue with, you know company's house and the fact that it doesn't have the power to check the information provided to it which is again a, an issue of political will um you know in terms of a workable solution um you know there are two workable solutions which would be pretty easy one of them would be to give company's house the money it needs to check the information which wouldn't be difficult i mean you know if, if you you can tell xxx isn't a real name so just you know that sort that out or well, the other one is to do what they do in the british virgin islands and say that that you can't register a company directly with companies house you need to go via a, reg- a regulated professional and then if there's a problem with the information then you're going to you can go after the regulated professional who filed it um i don't see why in britain we have this fetish with having to fi- be able to create companies directly at companies house you know i created one myself you know it took me what 15 minutes and cost me 12 pounds uh, you know it's it, it you know the idea that if you know, if it costs more than £12 to create a company, this is going to, you know, torpedo the British economy. You know, we were fine with Brexit torpedoing the British economy for the sake of sovereignty. So why can't we accept that we could charge £30 for a company, you know, in in order to try and end financial crime? It just seems extraordinary, considering the cost of financial crime to everyone in Britain. Um, So I'd say, to my mind, the best solution would be not to try and turn Companies House into an investigatory agency, which isn't what it's set up to do. It's a library. But instead to have the only people who can file information with it are people who are regulated for money laundering purposes, um, you know, with their whatever their regulatory body is. And um, whether that's solicitors or, or whoever, and, and leave it at that. And if there's a problem with the information, if, if you know, a solicitor creates a company and in the, in the PSC is XXX Stalin, then you know who to, who to prosecute for that. And, and soon enough, those filings will stop. It seems obvious to me, and I don't really know why this isn't being discussed.
1: No, it does sound like a very, very neat solution. This might bring us actually naturally to Roy Reeves' question, which is given the vast amounts of wealth we're turning a blind eye to in the UK and all the upper middle class jobs it's providing, is there any sense that this might be a sort of shadow government policy turning the UK into money land, given how important it seems to be for our professional services economy? well
2: it's a really really interesting question um and actually I, I in fact this next book i'm doing i was essentially in a way trying to answer it to look back and say you know who did this you know who was the official in britain who decided that this was a a good idea and actually you know you know, the more you look at sort of government and inverted commas, the more it sort of splinters as a concept um and actually the 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 sort of the first iteration of offshore in britain appears a year or two before the Suez crisis in the 1950s. And um, it was essentially a way of avoiding exchange controls, which at the time were, were put in place to support the pound. <coughs> and it was signed off by the Bank of England. So the Treasury didn't know this was happening. Um, you know, for They didn't know for years. Um, but the Bank of England were fine with it because they thought it would bring business to the city. So in a way, was there a government in inverted commas policy to support money land? Yes, there was. If you include the Bank of England in government, you know, the Bank of England was fine with it. Um, So, you know, it was in the early days, essentially some bits of government, um, initially the Bank of England, then subsequently the Treasury, were happy with anything that brought business to the UK. Um, You know, there might be bits of the Foreign Office didn't agree with it. But then in in other ways, the Foreign Office, if, if it was bringing business to the Cayman Islands or the British Virgin Islands, so that we didn't. We have to pay to support them anymore. We were kind of fine with that as well. Um so yeah, I mean I think it's it's a question of one some bits of government supporting the development of offshore just to get themselves off the hook of having to pay to support, you know, something, you know, raised tax revenue or raised, you know, fee revenue or whatever. Um and I think that's the issue that that we haven't stepped back and looked at this as a whole and said, you know, are we essentially selling criminals the rope with which they'll hang us? Um, we're worrying only about one side of the budget and not the other side. I think that that's been a long-term problem in the UK and possibly in other places. I mean, I think the Netherlands has had a similar issue with their overseas territories as well, um, and and and, the, and possibly the well in the US as well. If you look at what happens in Delaware and South Dakota and so on. So yeah, I mean, I think that 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 Britain has for a long time failed to analyse what's really happening or failed to care what's really happening. And yeah, undeni- undeniably, I um, mean, issue is the fact that yeah a lot of people were uh, are able to go and work in the city and earn loads and loads of money um essentially by moving funny money around um and that helps you know the children of the well-connected and the well-educated to to you know live prosperous lives um and and we don't really think about at at what cost that's happening
1: great well thank thank you very much i think we've covered a a hell of a lot of ground and I, i i see we've got quite a lot more questions to go through but what we do have is we have the famous senate Oh, yes, um, which um, is where you can submit your answers written. And then um, so, yeah, um, we've got the, the websites up there now, which you can all see. So if you log into ww.crime.financial forward slash of Senate, you can submit these questions and uh, we'll try and get Oliver to answer as many of those as possible. OK, um,
2: I'll, I'll definitely answer Rob's question about Elvis. That's um, yeah.
1: I was about to start, that was my sign off, actually. I think I think there might be a few more other people quite curious about what, what's Elvis doing in the, in the back of the room. Well, I
2: am slightly embarrassed to admit this, but um, when I was growing up, I used to have a bit of a weird thing about Elvis. Um, and I blame there was a, a, a matchbox that once said that Elvis died in the month I was born. Um, and, you know, I didn't, I grew up on a farm in Mid-Wales. I didn't know anything about Elvis really, but I was interested by the fact that he died in the month I was born. And I started as, as, a, as a quite a small child to sort of slightly think that maybe I was Elvis, kind of reincarnated, not in a sort of, I can't sing, but just in a sort of somehow. And so I've always had a bit of a strange thing about Elvis. And that was a, a present from my brother um, who decided that that um, that I needed to remind myself I wasn't in fact Elvis by having Elvis at present with me at all times. So there he is in the corner, keeping an eye on me.
1: Fantastic. Well, uh, I think that seems to be a, a good note, a good note to end on. The king lives. Um can I just say um thanks again to Rob for your introduction and to Encompass for sponsoring this webinar. I think I think we've all had some really interesting times and please please do catch up on the on the FEMA Senate because um, you know, obviously this a conversation we really want to keep on going. Um uh, and you know, hopefully do our bit to sort of help end this sort of global problem of money laundering. Um so thanks very much for tuning in and um enjoy the rest of your Thursdays. Thank you. And thanks, Oliver.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to the latest Themis podcast. We hope you found it interesting and informative. If you would like to find out more about Themis, get in touch with us via our website, www.crime.financial. You can also subscribe for future news and interviews.